Sunday of Christmas songs today, and then we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming. But uh, I wanted to start off today in Matthew chapter 2, we are introduced to the wise men. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We have come this morning to worship him too. Would you please stand as you are able and we'll start with, O come all ye faithful. visit to Herod. I'm going to skip that part for now. Um, and it says, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. We continue in uh, on with Light of the Stable. Thank you. 
they saw the child with Mary his mother and falling to their knees they worshipped him we just continue our worship this morning with we adore you Oh 
seated. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 12. I'll be reading from the ESV. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Salaam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word, and may God bless Pastor Dan's message. Uh, several years ago, I was privileged to lead several financial pe uh, peace classes, uh, and in one of those classes, I don't remember which one it was, I did, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 of them, something like that, and one of those classes, there was a, a single gentleman who was having trouble making his budget work, and so he asked me, he said, uh, uh, would you be willing to help me make my budget? And I said, absolutely, I'd be glad to. And so we set up a time, and I drove over to his house, and we get to work. And uh, one of the items that I quickly discovered as we were sitting there working on his budget was this was a man who had some expensive taste. And I mean that quite literally, like a $10 glass of wine every night, expensive taste. And so one of the suggestions that I made to him as I was looking at his budget and expenses, I said, maybe this daily ritual needs to be more like a monthly ritual. Right, so, uh, so we're sitting there, we're working on his budget, and that gave us some time for conversation. And, and one of the things that I was blessed with as we were working on his budget was he shared his testimony with me. And part of the challenge that this particular guy was having was uh, he had come from a 100,000-plus-a-year salary to a 20,000-plus-a-year salary. Right, So he had a lifestyle that allowed for some expensive taste to a lifestyle that says uh, groceries only, please. Right, So, so he had, this, uh, uh, he had a, a great job. He had made a bad decision, which landed him in, uh, we'll say, taxpayer-funded housing for a time. 
And he was now trying to get back on his feet again. Now, in hindsight, he said, as we were sitting there visiting and he's sharing some of his story, uh, he said, I'm thankful. Now, think about that. So 100,000 plus a year salary to 20,000 plus a year salary. And he said, I'm thankful. And he said, if it hadn't been for that bad decision that sent him to prison for a time, he said, I never would have met Jesus. He said, Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. And so he had a, a, this time of trial, this time of hardship, but it was a time that blessing came from because it was a time that God revealed himself to him and he came to know the Lord. You know, we, we live in a sin-cursed, broken world, and in the world in which we live, evil and suffering are part of our reality. And if you don't believe me, just read the headline news, turn on the, the news, right? It's like one thing after another, evil and suffering are just right there in, in our face. Now, when one's suffering is the direct result of one's choice, that we can somewhat understand, Right, we are people that like cause and effect, cause and effect. And when somebody's made choices that leads to their suffering, we're like, you know, what's some of the phrases? Well, you made your bed, so lie in it. Right, we can understand cause and effect. What's that? You reap what you sow, right? And that's kind of easier for us to understand than the harder question emerges when there is no explanation, such as when good people suffer. Uh, when we face trials through no fault of our own, when there is no explanation for the suffering that we might be going through. And this is what's led scholars and theologians and uh, just people throughout history to deal with questions of theodicy right now. Now, that's a fancy term, and what theodicy means is it's dealing with God's power and God's goodness, and how do we make sense of that in light of evil and suffering? And the argument goes something like this, right? If God is good, then he desires to deal with evil. And if God is powerful, he has the power to deal with evil. And we still have evil, so how do we explain that? That would be questions of theodicy, which we're going to revisit here in a little bit because some of you are wondering, well, how do we explain that? But this is a question that people have wrestled with throughout time, including in Jesus' day which is what we see the disciples doing as they come along with a blind man. So you likely don't like it, right? But evil and suffering are part of the reality of life, aren't they? Aren't you glad you came to church so you could learn something new, right? Deep and theological here, evil and suffering are part of life because we live in a sin-cursed and broken world. So verse 1 opens, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples... Oh, I'm sorry, I just want to end with verse 1 for now. So they passed by a man blind from, from birth. Now, timeline-wise, we're, we're, uh, we're coming back into our chronological life of Christ, harmonization of the gospel series. Uh, this is unique to John, so there is no harmonization to do. But timeline-wise, we're somewhere in the three months between the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where we were at the end of chapter 8. Uh, and you might recall, you may not, that Jesus has made some radical claims. He said, I am the light of the world. He says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And let's not forget, uh, as chapter 8 ended, before we went into the time of Advent, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that one sure got under their skin, didn't it? Because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Before Abraham was, I am. So we're somewhere in the three months between the Feast of uh, Tabernacles that just ended and the Feast of Dedication in chapter 10. 
And the claims that Jesus made in chapter 8 are confirmed and verified by the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. A blind man who progresses from blindness to physical sight to spiritual sight. Notice in this text, who takes the initiative? Jesus. In fact, nothing is said of his faith at all, initially. Right? We see his action where he obeys Jesus and goes and washes. But at the end of our text today, where does he end with his testimony? He says, uh, how did you get healed? Well, a man named Jesus. Now, as you go through the text, you're going to find he's going to be interrogated by the Pharisees and religious leaders. And as he's interrogated, as he reflects, as he gives, uh, what you're going to see is he grows in his understanding through the interrogations. Uh, but I thought chapter 9, 1 through 41 was a bit too much to... You know, I was told I could preach into the new year, right? But uh, I thought that might be a bit much for, for one day. So we're going to, we're, we're taking this message and we're kind of breaking it in a couple of parts to deal with the whole of, of chapter 9. But what I want you to see kind of as an overview, right, is he, he regains physical sight and he's going to grow in spiritual sight. So we're not going to cover all the verses today, right? So if I, if I leave you at a place where you're like, well, Jesus is more than just a man named Jesus. Well, Yes. But we're kind of following this journey of the blind man into spiritual sight. Uh, so suffice to say for now, the chapter begins with the man's blindness, and it concludes with judgment on the Pharisees who are spiritually blind. Because one of the things as we think about the scriptures that, the, that we should understand is that the inability to see is more than just the inability to see. And we could talk about physical blindness, and we can talk about spiritual blindness. And the Pharisees will not see the truth that's before their eyes in Jesus. But not only is it the Pharisees that have trouble seeing, so do the disciples. Who mistakenly misevaluate the whole situation. And so do the crowds who are divided in their response over Jesus and over the miracle that just occurred. Right? So, so we're, we're to see that the Physical blindness is only one aspect, and there's a spiritual blindness that's taking place as well. And as you go through the text, what you're going to find is, uh, as we progress through the, the testimony of the man, right, our text today ends with, well, how were you healed? A man named Jesus. And that's going to grow into verse 17, where he says, well, he must be a prophet. And it's going to grow into uh, verse 33, where he says, well, he's got to be from God, right? Until we get to verse 38, when he refers to Jesus as Lord, and more significantly, because Lord can be used of God or a human master, right? More significantly, he calls him Lord and worships him, right? So we're going to see this progression to physical sight, to spiritual sight from the healing of the blind man. And Jesus is going to meet him in his suffering, which is going to lead to this developing faith that culminates in, in worship. Uh, but first, we have to get there, right? So that's the, the big picture. Uh, blindness was... Not that uncommon in the days of antiquity, right? Living conditions were very different than our own. Uh, in this case, we have a man who's blind uh, from birth, which would have consigned him to a life of begging. And so as Jesus and his disciples walk by and they see his condition, it becomes patently obvious that the disciples have not taken a faith-to-life study at network on the book of Job. Obviously, Obviously right? Because they, they come on this situation, and what is the question that they ask? Initially, they see the man suffering, and their first instinct is, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Who sinned? Jesus, who's to blame? 
Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Now, they're not asking this question out of compassion or curiosity and also to comfort themselves because suffering is easier for us to handle if there's a cause and effect. It's easier for us to handle if it can be traced to a specific sin, if there's an explanation, if there's a reason why. Uh, you know, one of the questions that is embedded deep in, in each of us, and whenever suffering comes, it's the question we ask first. And what is that? Why? Why? Boy, I'm glad you guys got that. I don't know what I would have done if you didn't, right? Embedded in us, we, we want to know why. Cause, effect. Now, both the Jews and the Gentiles of the day believed that divine punishment for sins was administered through physical suffering. So the more greatly you suffer, the more greatly you must have sinned. Now, the problem is, is we all know that's not how the world works, right? Good behavior is not always rewarded. Bad behavior is not always punished, at least not in this lifetime. And that's why we have to understand the perspective of eternity, Right? And, and incidentally, it's also the perspective of eternity that will be the basis for answering the questions of theodicy about God's goodness and God's power in dealing with evil. Now, if you want to know the importance of good teaching, imagine the weight of this bad theology. If you're suffering, it's because of a sin that you committed, specifically. You're under the curse of God. If you're suffering, then you simply are getting what you deserve. And I just want to say, have you even read the book of Job? You know, the book of Job that begins with God saying, hey, have you considered my righteous man, Job? Have you even read it? And the answer to that is, you know what? They did. The disciples would have been familiar with the book of Job. The people of Jesus' day would have been familiar with the book of Job. But how often do we ignore teaching that we don't want to hear? or that makes us uncomfortable, such as the righteous can suffer, that makes us uneasy or doesn't fit with the theology, the theological system that we want to hold, right? You can bet that they knew the book of Job, and yet their first instinct is he must be punished because of a sin that he committed or that of his parents. So his suffering becomes, a, a first it becomes a teaching moment for the disciples, right? Real life is Jesus' classroom, right? And he uses real life to teach about God, himself, life in general. Think about all the parables that Jesus said that says, you know, a farmer went out to sow seeds. Or you're, you're, you're throwing out the dragnet, right? Jesus, Jesus used life as his classroom. And, and the reality is, is the disciples still have a lot to learn. And so the disciples ask, well, who sinned? This man. Because it's easier for us to reconcile suffering if there's a cause and effect, right? If, if I'm suffering for something that I did, that's easier for us to reconcile than the fact that suffering just happens as part of life. So who sent this man, right, which raises another question for us because he was born blind. So you might be asking a question, well, how could he have sinned to cause his blindness if he was born blind? As it turns out, there were rabbis who actually taught that it was possible to sin in the womb. Yep. Not all of them. 
right? But there were rabbis who taught it was possible to sin in the womb. And the basis for their reasoning came from Genesis, uh, Genesis uh, 25, 22 through 26. In Genesis 25, 20 through, 22 through 26, we see where there's a couple of twins struggling in the womb. Esau and Jacob, right? And we're told that these are the picture of two nations that are struggling in the womb. And uh, we're told that Esau and Jacob were struggling in the womb, and they interpreted that as Esau was trying to murder Jacob from the very beginning. You know, Dave was born with an umbilical cord around his neck. I wonder what that says of me. <laughs> I said he was, he was born first because I kicked him out, right? This is how important, right, how easily we can take something and we can speculate and use vivid imaginations to come up with something that isn't taught. But there were rabbis who taught you could sin from the womb, and they used that as their base text for that. Now, the other possibility, of course, is <laughs> blame the parents. Any of you have, have parents, did you ever say, you know, my job as a parent is to make sure you have something to tell your counselor? <laughs> blame the parents. Now, and we do have some passages of Scripture, such as in Exodus, where it says uh, God will visit the iniquity of the parents in the third and fourth generation. But isn't it interesting that God also says in Deuteronomy and Ezekiel and other places that a child should not be punished for the sins of the parent? A child should not be punished for the sin of the parent. Now, we don't have a chance to dig into all those passages, or we would be here till New Year's probably. But in the heart of God, God said multiple times, a child should not be punished for the sins of the parents. But here the disciples are, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because in their mind, the suffering of the man born blind who suffered for decades in blindness, they want an explanation. Who sinned? And why do they want an explanation? Because they want to resolve the tension of if God is all-powerful and if God is all-good, then not only why do evil and suffering exist in general, but more to the point, how can an all-powerful and all-good God allow the innocent to suffer? Now, they have an underlying assumption, right? And that is of attributing suffering to specific sins in order to kind of resolve this tension to avoid making it look like God's responsible for inflicting suffering on the innocent. And what we need to understand is what they've created is a false dichotomy that says it's either this or that. And not understanding that there are other options that are possible, right? And, and we see this in our world today, too, where, where people create all sorts of false di dichotomies, right? It's either this or that, and they don't consider all the, the possibilities. Now, it's true that all suffering is the result of sin in general, if there wasn't the fall in the garden in Genesis, then there would be no suffering and there would be no death. I guess we can blame our parents. <laughs> right? You go back far enough, right? Uh, so it is true that all suffering in general uh, are, uh, is the result of sin. Okay? The Bible makes that clear, as Jesus does here, however, that all suffering is not a result of one's specific sins. It's not always a result of one specific sense, but it is part of living in a sinful and broken world. Now, I say not always because at times it can be, right? People do make choices 
that'll lead to suffering. So there are occasions when specific sins might lead to specific suffering, right? So if I uh, go out and get drunk and drive, for instance, right? There are times that it does, but Jesus says it's not necessarily that way. And what the disciples mistakenly viewed as evidence of divine punishment, Jesus reframes it as divine opportunity. So Jesus comes and he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is not denying the universal sinfulness of humanity. What he is doing is denying that his blindness was the result of a specific sin by, his, by himself or by his parents. Now, the tricky part in the verse is the last part, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I say it's tricky, right, because many of us would just read through and we wouldn't even think about it. But there's a couple of possibilities that emerge from what Jesus says here. Does that mean that he was born blind for this purpose? That he was ordained to be blind for this moment in time? Or does it mean that the result of his blindness will give occasion or opportunity for the works of God to be displayed in him? Isn't that a fun dilemma? Now, here's the thing. Do you, uh, do you know how much punctuation was in the original Greek? None. And depending on how it gets punctuated in our translations, leads you one way or the other. So uh, I read through, uh, you know, um, several scholars that, that know Greek, right? That's always the fun reading, right? The, the fun ones are the ones that get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, and here's what I'm going to tell you. Either interpretation is possible in the Greek. Because the same term can indicate purpose or can indicate result. And how do you think we determine one or the other? Context. Context. Now, when you don't have punctuation in the original language, sometimes that makes it challenging. Now, the difference is either... He was ordained to be blind for this moment for Jesus to heal him, right? Or his being blind will result in giving uh, an, an opportunity for God to reveal his power. Now, if it's taken as purpose, then Jesus gives us an explanation for his suffering, right? The explanation is just so that God can be glorified. His works can be displayed. If it's taken as a result, then Jesus doesn't give us an explanation to why, he just says that the result's going to be that God's works are going to be manifested in his life. Now, the context to me, and based on most of the people that I read, uh, if not all the people, I'm trying to think of being, the context suggests that his blindness will result in the works of God being displayed. Uh, the same term is used in verse 2 where the disciples ask, whose sin resulted in his being born blind? And it fits with the context of verse 4 with uh, the works of God might be done while the opportunity remains. But can I say that with 100% certainty? Nope. Can't say it with 100% certainty. But that's the direction that, that I would be leaning with it. But both possibilities exist. Uh, now, some will be more comforted by having an explanation, right? Others will be more comforted by not knowing why, if that means it was ordained for just this one moment. Uh, what I'm not going to give you is a simplistic answer to a complicated question. But either way, what we do see is that God is greater than our suffering. 
and that God has the power to redeem it for good and for his purposes. Now, as we think about suffering in general, as, as Whitaker points out, uh, Scripture gives us different types of, uh, uh, of suffering for, we should say, uh, for different causes and different purposes. So for one, uh, we see suffering was sometimes to prove or test faith. So sometimes to prove or test faith. I mean, how do you know what you really believe if it's never tested, right? So, so that's one. Uh, another aspect of suffering in the scripture is for improvement or edification. Anybody read the book of James before? Isn't it funny how James begins, consider it, well, in, in the first chapter anyway, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why do we consider it joy when we encounter various trials? Because this produces that, produces that, produces that, right? There are certain things that we can learn through suffering that we cannot learn otherwise. There are certain ways that God can grow character that we could not grow otherwise, right? So uh, uh, one aspect of suffering is for improvement or edification, right? For growth. Uh, Another aspect of suffering in the scripture, of course, is for punishment of sin, but all often with the hope of leading to repentance. Uh, so one of the things that I've shared recently, right, is, is judgment is a necessity, right? Because if God is good, then he has to deal with evil and suffering. So judgment is a necessity because he has to deal with evil, and, and God's power says that he will, right? But redemption is God's heart. Why has God not dealt with it yet? Because he desires for all to come to repentance. Isn't that what Peter tells us? God is not slow about his promise, but desiring for people to come to, all come to repentance, right? God has not dealt with sin and evil yet, not in the fullness, because he's giving people time to repent, to come to know the gospel, to come to know him. But that is one of the reasons for suffering, right? Uh, kind of like the guy who, I'm thankful I went to prison because if I didn't go to prison, I wouldn't have come to know Jesus. Another aspect that we see in the scriptures is simply to display God's glory. Suffering and evil give uh, an opportunity to work in ways that wouldn't be there otherwise. Now, in this case, God's power will be revealed through physical healing. But it's not always that way. Right? So we also have an instance, say, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh, when God said, no, I'm not going to remove the thorn, right? So, so in one instance, we see where God displays his glory through healing, such as in the case with the blind man, and another case, we see where God displays his glory through giving Paul the strength to endure, right? So both aspects are, are scriptural. Now, undoubtedly, most of us prefer the former to the latter, right? But the goal is the same, the glory of God and that the works of God might be displayed. But if we like it, like it or not, there are some lessons that we can only learn through suffering. And, we, and God can reveal himself to us in suffering that he could not reveal to us otherwise. So verses 4 and 5 continue. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is once he ascends to the Father, he's no longer the light of the world, right? The focus is on the physical presence of Jesus at this point, and the reference today is equivalent to Jesus' presence with them, Jesus who is the light of the world. He says, night is coming. Uh, that's going to refer to the time of his crucifixion, when Jesus is going to be taken away from them. 
Uh, now, Carson describes the night as the time between the cross and the coming of the Spirit because it reflects this, this uh, period of Jesus' absence, right, that's, that's going to be present again through the Spirit. But he says, in this time, right, we have to do the work of him who sent me. Imagine the privilege of the disciples. Did Jesus need them? No. Does God need us? No. But he gives us the privilege to be part of his work, to work in us and through us to achieve his purposes. We, we must work the work of him who sent me. We have this privilege of being engaged in his work. And one of the opportunities that we have to be engaged in his work is the suffering that we see in the world. Suffering provides an opportunity for the work of God to be displayed. And what Jesus does uh, in chapter 9 is he repeats his claim from chapter 8, right? I am the light of the world. But what does he do in chapter 9? He says, let me prove it to you. And how does he prove it? He opens the eyes of a man born blind. Now, incidentally, when John the Baptist inquired if Jesus was the one, remember John the Baptist got to place, he's sitting in prison and he's having some doubts and he sends some messengers to Jesus and he says, uh, are you the one, right? Because I really thought you were the one, but he, I'm sitting in prison. Things aren't shaping up like I expected. This is not going down the way I thought it was going to go down. So John sends messengers to Jesus and Jesus answers them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. One of the signs of the Messiah would be the healing of the blind. He says, this is part of the evidence. Tell him. Now, this is not the only blind man that Jesus healed, right? But it is the only one who was born blind, at least that we're told of. That was born blind. Now, you might be wondering, well, why did Jesus spit on the ground and make mud? Right? That seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, that's not what he did with the other blind man. He's like, and all Jesus had to do was uh, open your eyes. Why does he spit on the mud and, 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 uh, or spit on the dirt and make mud with his uh, spit? So scholars also debate why. Uh, it's always fun to read different things, you know. This is where you call uh, holy imagination, speculation sometimes, right? Uh, some have said it's, uh, it's to allude to Genesis 2-7 where, you know, God makes Adam from the dust of the earth, right? So that, that in effect is Jesus is using the earth that we were made of to open his eyes uh, and kind of by implication, he's symbolically claiming to be God the potter, right? He's, he's taking creation just like uh, from Genesis, uh, Calvin suggests, uh, and uh, I'm just going to put it out there, it might be a suggestion, but uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He says, a mud pack was to double the intensity of the blindness to magnify the cure. We might have a lot to say, thank you for, but that's not one of them, all right? You know, I, I think mathematically, you know, twice a zero is what? You know, if you're totally blind, how do you get doubly totally blind? Yeah, so I'm not sure that that one's real helpful. Uh, others propose that it was to help induce faith. Because remember, the initiative is Jesus. This man hasn't asked for healing, hasn't given us any indication of faith. So others propose maybe it's to help induce faith. And, and a picture of Jesus meeting him where he was. 
Uh, Burge comments that there was, at this time, some belief of medicinal value in the spittle of a renowned person. Now, rabbis of this time were generally critical of that belief, but just the same, it was a belief that was present at that time, right? That there was some medicinal value in the spittle of renowned people. Now, interestingly, you know, uh, I, I usually dig into the text and do different things, and then I'm like, okay, can I find some illustrations to help illustrate? And, and I ran across this from Steve Arterburn, who wrote it in uh, More Jesus, Less Religion. And he says, some time ago, I read about the work of a Wycliffe Bible translator in a remote village. And the members of this tribe had their own hard-to-abandon gods and superstitions. One of their practices was to spit on the wounds of the sick. So I guess we should say this wasn't just limited to Jesus' day, right? Uh, their medicine men were known as the spitters, and they did not want someone like Jesus to take away their status in the village. However, the attitude changed as more of the Bible was translated into the tribe's dialect. When translators read the passage where Jesus cured a blind man in the most unusual way, the medicine men pricked up their ears. The master spit on the ground, made a paste of mud, and put it on the man's eyelids, told him to wash it off, and the man was healed. When these tribesmen heard this story in their own language, they saw that Jesus was not against them but for them. They found one of their own, a savior who also was a spitter. And they came to the Lord because of this connection. Now, could Jesus have done it for that reason? Sure, if he wanted to. I'm not sure that's the reason he did it, right? But he could have if he wanted to. Uh, personally, I, I suspect it's, uh, at least originally, uh, maybe he had a dual purpose, right? But he's meeting the blind man where he is. And he's providing a catalyst for his faith a faith that we're going to see that will emerge and grow throughout the text as we go through the text. Whatever Jesus reason, in verse 7, he goes on and says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now the pool of Siloam was built by Hezekiah, who constructed an underground tunnel from a spring outside the city to carry water into the city so that when the city was under siege, they would still have a supply of water. Now, there happens to also be a, an amount of symbolism in the text, right? Jesus is the light who brings sight. He is the sent one who is sending, and he is the one through whom we have spiritual cleansing, sight, and salvation. Now, I know it's been a few weeks since we've talked about John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, we're also at the time of the uh, Festival of Tabernacles, and you might remember another claim that Jesus made during the water ceremony that drew from this same pool. When Jesus says, come to me all who are thirsty, or if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Remember that? If anyone thirsts, let him come, not to God, but come to me and drink. And during this ceremony, they would have quoted from Isaiah 12, 3, which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So we also have some symbolism that's taking place in the midst of using mud and then sending him to go wash in the pool. But what we see is that God's power in our suffering and ability to bring good from it, right, is also going to provide opportunity to give testimony. So as we continue in the journey of the, blind, uh, of the healed man now, verses 8 and 9, 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So the, the blind man's eyes are opened, and his neighbors could not believe their eyes. Because day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they've watched him sit and beg. His very survival has been dependent on their generosity. And so they're discussing and debating his identity because they cannot believe their eyes. Now, the first thing, uh, you know, the first to see the difference that Jesus makes in one's life is those closest to him or her, right? So they see there's something different about this guy. But even seeing the difference doesn't guarantee everybody will accept what they see, right? And, and we've seen this other times in Scripture as well. Uh, the presence of miracles are no guarantee of faith because there will always be those who will seek to explain away what they see. And so we see some of the neighbors are saying, wow, his eyes are open. And we have others who are saying, no, 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 he's just like him, right? They're seeking to explain it away. And this is the first time he's going to be asked about his healing. Uh, as we uh, pick up with the text next week, we're going to see where there's, uh, the Pharisees are going to start inquiring and interrogating him on his healing as well. But for now, with this case, we see verses 10 through 12. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. You know, the real question is not how his eyes were opened, but who opened them. And what's his response at this point? All he knows is, hey, it was a man named Jesus. It was a man named Jesus. Now, Joe Merrill writes, and I quote, uh, in the days of Jesus, Jews believed that only the Messiah would be able to heal a man who was born uh, blind from birth. Blindness was said to be a curse from God, and therefore only God could remove that curse. So when Jesus performed this miracle, it definitely got the attention of the people, especially the Pharisees. But at this point, all the man says, as part of his testimony, is it was a man called Jesus. Now, keep in mind, at this particular point in time, he can't even pick Jesus out of a lineup. He was blind. Jesus doubled his blindness, right? And sent him to a pool. He doesn't even know what Jesus looked like. But he knows what he's heard. I know it was a man named Jesus. Can't tell you who he is. Can't tell you where he is. All I can tell you is it was a man named Jesus. Now as the text unfolds, he's going to come into a greater understanding of who this Jesus is. And how is he going to grow in that understanding? Well, in part, we're going to see he's going to grow in his understanding of who Jesus is through sharing his testimony of what Jesus did. And in sharing what Jesus has done, He's going to be putting the pieces together and growing an understanding of who Jesus must be. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, there's, there's power in testimony, isn't there? There's power in a testimony for those who hear, who begin to ask, where is he? Who is this who's done this kind of work for you, right? But there's also power in testimony in those who share. Because throughout the text, we're going to see this progression of growth in his own faith. Because as we're thinking about what God has done for us, we're also calling to mind 
what God has done for us. And we're getting a clearer picture of who God is and the power that God has and the faithfulness of God who walks with us and, and the journey. And as we reflect on and share how God has worked in our life, we begin to see more clearly how God has been present, how God has been faithful in good times as well as hard times. And in fact, as we reflect and, and think about uh, God's work in our lives, it's also an, a, a prompt for growing in our own faith, isn't it? So you might notice uh, in your, uh, on your communication card, you actually have a little box that says, uh, interest in giving testimony. Uh, and uh, one of the things, uh, we've done it before in the past, it's been uh, quite a while now, but if, if you have interest in sharing your testimony in the year to come, uh, and, and you don't have to give an answer today, but uh, you can think about it, uh, needless to say, it w I would invite you to think about your testimony and how God has worked in your life as we end this year and as we move into the next. Because as you reflect on who God has been uh, and how God has touched your life, you might just find that it is something that helps you grow in your own faith as well. Uh, at this point, with the blind man, all we have is, it was a man called Jesus. So we're going to end today at that point, and we'll pick up with the rest of his story next week. So if you are watching TV, right now you see, to be continued. Amen. In your bulletin, you have a communication card. I should have put that on a slide, shouldn't I have, Don? To be continued. Should have put that on the slide. Uh, we, uh, we invite you to think about how God might be uh, speaking to your heart, working upon your heart. And we invite you to throw that in the uh, offering baskets as part of your worship, thinking about how you're going to respond to uh, what God is, how God is leading. As we uh, prepare ourselves for communion and stewardship, you know, one of the points we see with the blind man is, you know, God is greater than our suffering. And God has the power to redeem it. Uh, for his good and for his, for good and for his purposes, and uh, nowhere do we see that more evidently than we do in the cross, where God took the greatest evil of all time, the crucifixion of His Son, and He used that greatest evil of all time to bring about the greatest good, our salvation. You know, there are many things in life that occur that uh, that we don't have explanations for, and there's great suffering that uh, happens that we don't understand. Uh, but as we come to the Lord's table, we do have a foundation uh, that gives us assurance uh, that God is not only good, but that God has the power to work even through suffering and evil to achieve his purposes and to have victory in the end. So may that faith carry us into the new year as we join in his work and as we watch for how the works of God may be displayed uh, in the midst of a world that is marked by even evil and suffering. So I want to remind you that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. A glorious and loving Father, as we come to this table, we are reminded that judgment is a necessity because you are good and you are holy and sin and evil and suffering must be dealt with. But we also come to this table recognizing that redemption is your heart 
And the reason why we still deal with evil and suffering in this uh, broken world is because you're giving people time yet to repent and to turn to you. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that we would have not only the faith, but that we would have the patience to wait for you and to know that your purposes are good and that we would trust uh, your heart even as we wait to see your hand because we've seen you throughout the past show yourself to be so faithful. So we come and we just ask that you administer to our hearts as we come and receive in Jesus' name, amen. this um, if you are considering sharing your testimony or even if you aren't I'll just add this on that for some of us it is not a phenomenal what we would consider a phenomenal testimony 
Uh, some of us were born in the church, raised in the church, and are still in the church. And honestly, that is a wonderful testimony. It gives hope to those to know that there can be goodness um, from staying in the church. So whatever your testimony is, uh, whether you think it's so-so, eh, I would encourage you to just really pray about it and think about it because you never know who would be encouraged by it. Um, everyone needs a little encouragement, and, and I think it's good to hear how everyone has encountered Christ in their lives. So just consider it. With that, <laughs> we'll close with Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates. Would you please stand and join us in this song? forth walking with Jesus as the disciples did, open to his correction, joining in his work, trusting in his promises, and walking in his light, that we might be able to see more clearly and serve more faithfully. So may your testimony lead others to be asking, where is he? So that they too might come and see because of the testimony of your life as you go forth as his disciples. Amen.